I think it's, you know, things like this, more, you know, vendors and folks can put information out like this to like help us make decisions, the better. So, uh, you know, just again, kudos to your team and, and yourself for, for making this happen. I, I think this is some valuable information to make decisions based off of and start helping shape, you know, SOC operations and hiring and uh, training and whatnot. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the new CISO. Today we're going to cover the state of the SOC report with Brian Hoagley. Brian, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. For those that have listened in the past, you will remember Brian has uh, had a kind of a one-on-one uh, with us, and he was also part of a end-of-year wrap-up that we did that was actually one of our most popular shows. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, I think, one of the, the leading downloads, I believe. So, But for today, uh, we recently uh, released the State of the Sock, our third one. We had 295 people, both in uh, from all over the world, uh, but frontline workers, mid-level management, and C-level uh, give feedback about uh, what they think about the state of their SOC. And then we uh, roll it all, all up and, and made this report. Brian, anything stand out uh, out of the gate uh, for you in the report? Kudos to your team first for, for putting this together. I, I know it's got to be a significant amount of time and effort. Um, and I'll tell you, as a, as a CISO and, and just as a security nerd who likes to read, uh, you gave me something else to read, which I think is great. I love it. I think it's, you know, things like this, more, um, you know, vendors and, and folks can put information out like this to, like, help us make decisions, the better. So, uh, you know, just, again, kudos to your team and, and yourself for, for making this happen. I, I think this is some valuable information to make decisions based off of and start helping shape you know, SOC operations and, and uh, hiring and uh, training and whatnot. Yeah, thank you. I mean, this is a, a team effort and it, it does a couple of things. I think the first is that, frankly, it helps keep us relevant, right? If we're not asking questions of the people that we serve and create product for, you know, we're not doing our job. And so going out and, and surveying kind of what they're doing and how they're doing it uh, is a big piece of that. And the next piece is, and you, you mentioned this, is that it's community research. It's it's feedback to give, hopefully, to then uh, allow organizations to make better decisions. And that's really at what, what this is all about, right? So if you see a trend, uh, you may take a certain action. If you see a discrepancy between you know tiers, you may need to take an action. Seeing kind of what your your peers are doing is also important. But I think also kind of the, the core to this, this discussion uh, is, is going to be a little bit unstructured, but but calling out why do we think some of these numbers are in place? And then in particular to, to you, what, what is it that we want to do or what we would recommend mm-hmm. remedy the issue? And so this is a ton of fun for me. I mean, I, I'm, it's, it's near and dear to my heart, uh, these types of discussions. And so thanks for being on the show to, uh, to have a chat. Yeah. Well, I, I'll say that, you know, how many times and why people should really embrace things like this, but like as a CISO or a SOC manager, how much are you really talking to or the ability to even talk to other SOC managers or CISOs about these types of operations? So information like this, I think, is actually kind of hard to come by, especially, you know, if you're kind of you know, in the weeds day to day doing firefighting in a SOC. So to, to get something like this to help inform you, I just don't see the ability to get information like this otherwise. So, yeah, again, thanks. This is 
a really great way to be able to get this type of info into the hands of people who should really need it. Yeah, it, it's, you know, there are cases where there's information sharing, but it happens at a very, kind of a very simple way and generally through friendships and not, right. in, a, not in a structured or sort of a, a statistically significant way, typically, right? Um, yeah. You know, we, we probably all subscribe to some sort of Intel sharing platform but not sort of a, a program level intelligence sharing pl platform. The closest you're going to get is going to a conference and seeing your friends or seeing sure. other people on stage talk about their, you know, trials and tribulations. And that's where you're going to get this type of information. But a lot of it isn't, that's just one view, right? So this is great that it's just aggregated data that gives you many different views into it. So let's get into some of it. What's kind of the first thing that stands out? This is a large report. We're not going to go through every slide or, or every topic, but what's, um, what's most curious or maybe most interesting out of the gate for you? So, you know, reading it sequentially, but like the, the early, just the, your project overview, the things that really stuck out to me around the technology and finance and budget sections early in the report are that most SOCs now expect to see biometrics authentication and SOAR tools to take precedence over other technologies in the coming years. I thought that was, that was kind of nice to actually hear because we're basically saying, great, we're going to see and we should see more MFA. We should see more biometrics for authentication, getting away from passwords, and we should see more automation in the space. Like that's music to my ears. I, I'm so glad to hear that, that type of thing. The other one that was interesting right there in finance and budget, I didn't realize this that um, Europe takes precedence over other global counterparts in their use of first-party risk insurance to, to manage risk. You know, I know the European insurance markets are really strong, but, you know, I figured the adoption rate of insurance inside of the U.S. around cyber was significantly higher, but your data is, you know, telling us otherwise. So I think that was really interesting to key in on and a possible growth area for the U.S. markets. Why do you think that there's a desire? I have my own opinion but I'll withhold it for the moment. Why do you think that is? So if Europe is going to go in stronger on insurance, why is that? Why do you think that is? I think they just, they have a better position and understanding of how to use the right types of insurance. Plus, I think just the, I, my personal view is that the European insurance markets and carriers are stronger in their ability to address cybersecurity risks than uh, the U.S. companies are currently. I won't argue with you there because I, I haven't dug into kind of the, the foundations from that perspective, mm. but I will argue that I've had uh, discussions one-on-one -on -one, uh, with, with several executives, what I'll say in the EMEA area. Uh, many of them, the perspective is, is that insurance takes the place of a security program in many ways. And this is not a one-off and not only held by them and they may be neutral on it, uh -huh. these are CIOs, CISOs, but their leadership at the ELT level believes the insurance policy is, is exactly that. And huh. so it is my belief that in some of these examples that they're quick to get insurance, maybe for the right reason, but also with the, uh, they're, they're seeing it as a, a better value than building a security program. Huh. My belief is that that's the wrong thing to do. Like, you, you don't lead with, right? My daughter and I just watched Incredibles 2 the other day, and there's that great scene when he's just like, let's not launch into the whole insurance. We'll take care of everything just yet scene. Right. 
Like you don't start with that. Like that's the risk management play you use when you're trying to fill in the gaps that you've otherwise addressed with other solutions. So maybe that, and maybe that's what the data was showing you guys and came through in the report was maybe that's what it's articulating is like Europe is using more insurance because they want to lead with that over, you know, building out a proper sock operation. I don't know. I have a strong sense that that's probably a, uh, a follow-on question. Maybe for year four, the state of the sock would be the question I always have is how many of your teams were involved in underwriting or being involved in sort of the audit, which is effectively what it is when you obtain a, a, uh, the insurance policy. Right. Mm. So it's amazing how many of those people were not involved with that process. These are CIOs or CISOs. And so my point is, is if you're not involved in it, how good do you think that insurance is? And have you even looked at the exclusions? I've come across oh, yeah. several <laughs> officer level folks who have, who cannot tell you the exclusions. So right. it's like, this may not be worth a nickel if you have a problem. Yeah, so that, that doesn't shock me. You know, you got to figure out like, you know, where we could do a whole probably discussion on just cyber insurance or where insurance sits, but you know, who that's coming into, it's not coming into the CISO. Like they're being kind of given the, the, the ticket, you know, through the order of, Hey, uh, we need to answer this for, uh, you know, this carrier who's giving our insurance can answer these questions. And it's like, it's going to a CFO or procurement or somebody else. So uh, that, that does make sense because they're not involved, but hopefully you'll see that change. I, I've seen some areas change where they're including the CISO, the privacy officer or internal audit on helping get a better policy or helping renew the current policy. But it's definitely not as leveraged as much as it probably should be, to your point. Sure. It's interesting also, to be clear, insurance is probably my least favorite area of the report just as a topic. We run across it as important, but just personally, it's, you know, yeah. it's interesting though how, how we're, we cut it across uh, US, UK, Germany, Canada, and Australia. And so the possession of it, uh, the Germans take the lead, mm -hmm. actually, which is kind of cool. The Aussies coming in last place. So. Hmm. Not sure if there's a conclusion to draw from that, but uh, it is sort of interesting that there's a, a significant difference between uh, kind of the ownership, 56 versus 32%. Hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know if that's a, a difference in, uh, in, in just the approach or maturity. Uh, interestingly, uh, the Germans also lead if you cut up uh, earlier in the report where we were talking about who they interface with the most. Uh, the Germans work most with their privacy department, mm -hmm. which is not uncommon with what they have, some of the rules with workers' council uh, there, but uh, kind of an interesting tie there between insurance and kind of if you're looking at where do, where do the Germans kind of take the lead. So what else, man? Anything else that's, uh, that's curious or made, maybe made you chuckle? I don't know about laughing at, but I, I, like the, I like the responsibilities by roles. And there does seem to be like a clear and correct kind of alignment to like who's supposed to do what like your, your CISOs are are definitely standing there answering that they're doing and working on the right things your managers and frontline employees are working on you know the right things like you you know it's clear and nice to see okay frontline employees aren't answering that they're handling operations and management like that's not part of their role like that's obviously the CISO's role so it's good to see that kind of roles and responsibilities are clearly I don't want to say defined, but accepted by those in those roles. Uh, but then conversely, it's not like it's, you know, 100% and zero on each of these, like you would expect. You still see 
you know, CISOs weighing in saying that 54% of them uh, believe that threat hunting and incident response and investigating suspicious activity are underneath their role. Now, if they are answering them as if, yes, that's technically underneath me because that team reports to me, or were they answering it like, no, my hands are on the keyboards? Yeah, that's you and I've talked about that before. And I, I think it's a, a little of, of both there. But I think the larger point is, is that they're, if in fact they are working on that stuff, that's sort of a, to the detriment of the larger program. Right, right. One of the things we, we get into, which I find fascinating, is just the use of outsourcing, which for those kind of following along, if you have the report up, it's uh, slide 14, uh, I believe, in the, the final version, where mm-hmm. it looks like UK and Germany lead in terms of overall outsourcing, uh, whereas in the States, we've got just 28%. Mm-hmm. And we break it out in there. Anything, does that seem curious to you just in terms of either what is outsourced or the percentages? It's curious in the sense that I'm not shocked. Um, I'm definitely seeing a lot of uptick in companies embracing outsourced security now in the, inside the U.S., my focus being in the U.S. markets pr- predominantly. So that's not shocking. It's still low and I'm still kind of wondering why, you know, I mean, does does everyone actually believe that they're still kind of trying to build their own kingdoms and, and build like their entire operations? And is that cost effective? Or are they just building them because that's what they're used to, because that's what they did with IT. And now it's translating over to, I need to have full control over it. So I need to be able to bring it in house. But um, I, I, I just, I don't know on that one, but I just, it, it's not surprising. Um, but I think when we do it next year, you, you will definitely see probably an uptick in, in that. The functions, though, definitely don't surprise me. I mean, I don't see a lot of operations internally running and building out their own threat intel. So that's a good thing to probably be pulling in from somebody else. Right. That makes sense. So, but yeah, this, the entire stock is outsourced. Zero percent. Interesting. Right. And, and I think that, so for those that haven't seen the report yet, we break out kind of the ingredients of what you'd have in a modern security operations center. The first one leading to your point, is threat intel. There are some organizations that will generate and curate their own intelligence. Um, oh, sure. sure. But it's also very common to subscribe to someone else's work, um, You know, either for some sort of retrospective analysis or some research, or even just, uh, it could even be you know, loading and matching of IOCs, which I don't particularly uh, approve of, but you know, those types of outside services, mm-hmm. uh, stolen credentials, that kind of thing. So that's upwards, it's a increasing, it's upwards of 51%. But one thing I was amazed at is EDR at 43%. So you're paying somebody to manage, effectively to, to in some ways, hunt or to detect and respond, typically with an endpoint agent, uh, 43%. I found that surprisingly high. Really? Oh, okay. I've seen a big increase in the managed detection and response, like service offering, especially in the US markets. A lot of a lot of players and MSSPs are starting to kind of move from, you know, just managed SIM or managed, um, you know, just SOC operations, uh, you know, as a whole to just focusing on managed endpoint. But I, I actually thought that was kind of low if, if given all things being outsourced as far as functions go. Sure, sure. And, and the other thing is, is EDR can mean you ask 10 people, it can, right. it can mean 10 different things. So it, it kind of kind of depends, you know, and we call out IR separately as well. Uh-huh. So, you know, I, I found that uh, kind of interesting to me that uh, I thought it was high, but, you know, your perspective is, is uh, I, I think it's, 
it's curious to see the kind of the differences we even have uh, on our approach on this. Because I think from in many cases, for better or for worse, we typically we agree more than we disagree. Yeah. The, the malware analysis being 32%, um, that's interesting in the sense that people are confident enough that they're in, basically saying that they're internally doing malware analysis effectively. Like that, that kind of skill set is not that easy. And that, you know, this report's saying that most people feel confident in their in-house ability to do that. It's like, wow, kudos. Good for you guys. Keep those people. <laughs> well, yeah. So I think that that is, I agree. But it may lead into an idea also of overconfidence, which is kind of a right. theme that I think, uh, and, and we don't know, right? We're not, we're not going out and evaluating these programs, you know, face to face. We're taking them based on their own sort of assessment, which, which could be flawed. But, uh, you know, on uh, later in the report, we call out, you know, 82% of SOC professionals, so everybody we surveyed, are confident in their ability to detect kind of the threats they're likely to see. Uh, to me, that is, so we ask, are they confident enough? And then, you know, sort of full confidence. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, 64% of SOC managers, they were very sort of proud of their capabilities mm-hmm. um, in this. You know, many were neutral, but I mean, 82%, that's surprising. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do you do you think that that's overconfidence or do you think that that's, something else. It, well, I think the only way you could determine if it's overconfidence is to be able to marry it up to their ability to actually detect and respond to those threats. Like I think without that data point it's kind of hard. But on the surface, you know, I I found a little bit more interesting underneath full confidence, 31% of CISOs are conf- fully confident in their ability or their team's ability to detect. <laughs> and yet only 20% of the SOC managers and 26% of the of the frontline workers were fully confident in doing it. So, you know, looking at that, uh, those numbers to me are like, Ooh, you, you better get a little closer to your team and start listening to them or maybe pressure testing their answers, um, as a CISO, if those numbers are true. So I, that's an interesting story right there. Yeah. I think it's back of, you know, how are they evaluating their confidence? Like uh, what is the product so of all the things the SOC does, mm-hmm. whether real or synthetic, right, you can synthesize certain things to test and evaluate, but out of that output, how, how is the frontline worker, the SOC manager, or the officer evaluating their confidence? Mm-hmm. Like confidence is a product of, of several things, right? It's, it's some of its attitude, bravado, some of its statistical measure, some of its metrics, some of its audit findings, all these types of things, right? It's a, and none of those are really, you know, I found good enough. You know, I always was a big fan of adversary simulation and then watching the behavior uh, of the team Hmm. and, uh, not enough people are doing that, which maybe, uh, I'm actually taking a note right now should be a follow on for next year, which is looking into adversary. So how many people it's different yet than pen testing typically. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but how, how many people are actually doing that? So behaving like an adversary on purpose, either your own internal staff or, or external to then look at the, the, the likelihood, you know, utilizing things like elements of the MITRE attack framework to say, okay, you know, can I detect lateral movement? Can I identify stolen credentials? Can I put together an attack chain? Mm-hmm. These sorts of things, right? So that would be, be curious to see how many of these very confident CISOs, you know, how are they evaluating it? Right, right. Yeah, and see what that KPI looks like when it comes out <laughs> and if it matches up or exceeds or their confidence level. Yeah. 
I'm amazed half of the respondents said they were correctly staffed. So 50%. Uh I found that to be interesting. I also found that 10% said that they're overstaffed. 2% said they're heavily overstaffed. (laughs) So you've got 62% are either correct or overstaffed. Right, right. Yeah. That to me is, is, is interesting. You know, of the people that say that they're understaffed, some are saying that they're, it's between six and 10. So 31% of those people are saying it's between six and 10 headcount, which in my past six head, let's say it's six is trying to get six staff, you know, headcount filled and approved is almost impossible. Yeah. That's a lot. That's yeah. That, that is a lot. I, I know in the U S market, you guys have 23% of SOC personnel report being understaffed by more than 10 employees. So right. near a quarter of U.S. socks feel like they're under by 10, 10 people, which honestly, that's, I guess that seems right. And uh, you probably need to get up to you know, a larger amount for that to be a, a five-person sock isn't sitting there probably answering that question that way. But the, <laughs> the larger ones are, right? So, that, I mean, that, but that makes sense. Um, that was one area that I, I, when I was looking at you know, the hiring and staffing um, portions of this report, I thought were really, really good. And it flows into the, um, the understaffing, you know, is it due to the common hiring challenges that you guys found in outline, right? The U.S. show year-over-year improvements in identifying candidates and lowering recruiting costs, but SOC still struggle with identifying those candidates. Like 40% feel that they don't have enough qualified people to be able to interview and bring in. It's like, wow. Right. Yeah, those, so for those playing at home, I think uh, it uh, would be slide or page rather 23. But yeah, the number one reason, yeah, not qualified enough, uh, then directly under that would be uh, identifying candidates with the right expertise. So we don't have enough qualified people. Uh, they don't have the right ex- uh, expertise. And then uh, the third one is not enough skill, right? So that to me is is um, kind of the interesting top level reasons. But at the same time, 16% of the people that responded, again, we're talking about employee retention and identifying the right people, 16% say they don't even have hiring standards. Right. Yeah, that's amazing to me. It is amazing, but I've seen it. I mean, it's, um, you know, lack of hiring standards could be either the standards are, are way, way too over the top as far as like what HR is looking to actually, you know, help you with or build out. We start getting into some of these like, you know, pay band discussions about where, you know, where you are. You know, that's probably, I think COVID will now change the whole dynamic of, I need to see you, you need to be here. There is no remote work. You're you're working at this location. Like, well, that's about to go out the door, but um, that's still very much an issue. And those are all the things when I look at standards that get roped in, like how many discussions I've had with an HR lead about the fact that trying to get this type of skill set, it's only available in these five people in the US currently who are willing to come work for us, number one. Two, none of them are willing to actually move here. So what can we do? It's like, oh, well, we can only pay them for X. It's like, but if they lived here, we could pay them for X plus Y. Why can't we just give them that? Like, that's, that's great. And that's what we should use to attract them. And those standards, you know, sometimes work. That the, to me, that's a lack of hiring standards on the, on the other side. You know, not having any type of, you know, qualifications or, or standards on the low end is one thing. But when it's too onerous and it impacts your ability to attract the right people because you can't fit them into the quote unquote rules of the company right. to bring them in, then that hurts you too. I've seen that 
firsthand way too many times. And then you get, you get screwing around trying to get someone in making these arguments that often become political and the, t- the candidate just goes someplace else right. in the meantime, right? You can't get an offer out. They can't figure out a way to make it work. You know, speaking of that, you know, our, our current situation will accelerate this. It'll be interesting to see what next year says, but 25% say that uh, professionals are moving to freelance work. So they're saying the hell with your corporate job. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go do it on my own. Yeah. Because the market's good enough. Right. That was the, what is it? The number five challenge. That's huge. And not shocking either. I mean, honestly, if you're good enough at something, especially in this space, you can go be a mercenary, right? You can go do it yourself, charge the rate. You've got a name. You've got a capability. You go work for the highest bidder. Because honestly, if you're, if you're at that senior level of the SOC space, you're probably playing that anyway. Um, and then to the earlier point on lack of standards and, you know, you and I have having seen this, when those things happen, what the candidate takes away is you've shown your hand on what your HR processes look like and the possibility of future advancement, what you're going to have to go through. Like, do you want to sign up for that going into a company? No. <laughs> right. right. It's like, oh, I've already seen behind the cloak. Yeah. I don't want any part of that in a year or two. I'm just going to get out now. I'm going to go work for somebody who makes it easy to onboard because I bet you promotions, benefits, career advancement, those things are probably, you know, along the same lines as your onboarding process. So it, because those things are, you know, within HR departments are not too leap to disparate things. It's usually the same people, it's the same processes, same decision makers. They're usually coupled in how they're addressed. So it's the same, same culture, right? Culture. That's a, I always try to steer away from actually saying that word culture, because it's, can mean so many different things to so many different people, but yes, exactly. Well, and, and, you know, in that, one of the things that I, I, so one of the things I laughed at in the report that I see, so of, of those we asked, 228 people said that their staff is easy to retain. Um, and the number one reason why at 49% was simply good pay mm-hmm. now. So pay matters, mm-hmm. but every bit of research that I've read from a leadership perspective, from a psych- psychology perspective, all of this, anything I can find tells us that humans in general appreciate good pay, but it's usually not even in the top five reasons why uh, they'll stay. Uh, the inversion of that is you'll often hear is that people don't leave uh, companies, they leave managers. Right. right? They leave. And so I'm curious that the number one reason of Keep in mind, these are leadership is responding to this, right? So we're asking people, they're giving their, their honest opinion is why is it that they are able to, to keep their people? And number one is we pay them. Right. And I find that a little scary in a way. Well, yeah, because number nine is great leaders. Like 24%, <laughs> the, the 24% say great leaders, which is half of good pay. And the, the least common answer, which... I honestly think elimination of nonsense work, like yeah, like shit that doesn't matter. It was always really important to me when I was an analyst, but but especially important when I would look at the behaviors of the staff that I was you know honored enough to to, to work with, and I was help you know helping them along and, and proud to be their manager, proud to be their leader. Was getting rid of kind of these garbage tasks, and that was the least common answer. Nineteen percent said the elimination of the mundane. So, I, I guess I'll ask a larger question: Do you think 
security leadership or the perspective of what it takes to make happy people based on these answers? Do you think they've got it zeroed in or do you think that, that we're still sort of upside down? I think based on this, no. I mean, good pay is not the thing that you use to retain people. That's how you get people in the door. That's how you attract them. But in order to keep them, you can't just keep throwing money. You need to give them, the, like you said, in your challenging work, training. You do need to eliminate mundane tasks. I mean, your role as a leader, my role as a CISO that I saw was, you know, how do I clear the road so you can be successful, right? Like, how do I just remove all the blockers, right? And do that. We, we used to, I used to love the whole mundane task thing. And we've worked with, you know, Exabeam, I've worked with Exabeam on a product side and as a customer as well. Everybody knows that because of it, because of this, which was, you know, tell them the sock, hey, if you do something three times, put it on the board for automation. Like that thing is right. Like, and, it, and I would challenge the younger folks, you know, to think about it in the way of like, hey, do you really want to keep doing this thing? Like over and over and over again? Is that because eventually you're going to get bored of it. You're going to hate, you're going to hate doing it. And it's eventually going to trickle up to hating me because I'm making you do it. <laughs> so, so let's help get rid like, let's get automation in play and, right. uh, you know, get, get rid of some of this stuff so that you can work on the fun. Cause that leads to you getting to, right. You're what those are the third, the fourth one that leads you to working on challenging things, which is what people want to work on. So yeah, it seems, uh, if this is leadership answering it, I think some leaders have kind of got it a little backwards as far as the difference between attracting and retaining talent. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing. And it doesn't really make me feel great to see some of these answers. But it's good that we've collected it, you know, because there's reality mm -hmm. perception, right? So this is the perception of those who have answered. I don't want to call them wrong, but I think it's an opportunity again Many points of this report, when you see stuff like this, it's an opportunity to reflect to say, okay, how much of this applies to us? Mm -hmm. And if you're not sure, to, to have that conversation. And sometimes leadership has to kick that off, right? If you're the, the manager or the CISO, you have the power to take the time to go down and talk to your SOC. Right. To go talk to those folks and ask them in full candor. And, and they can't be afraid when you ask it to say, hey, tell me about your job. Right. What's the worst part of your job? What's the best part? What do you want to do next year? What do you want to do in your career? Like, what's the most frustrating thing? You're getting getting into that uh, a little deeper later on in the report, you know, talking about reasons why people are employees are difficult to retain. Yeah, I'm looking right at that one. Like that yeah. was the one I wanted to go to. I was like, and you and I have talked about this, right? The number two. Right. You and I have had a conversations about this. We both share backgrounds and having dealt with it, but high stress. Like the first one's obvious, heavy competition for specialists. Like that's kind of a given, right? You know, you're going to go find your specialist. You made a name for yourself. You're awesome with malware. Boom. You're going to go find a job. Okay. That's, that's a given, but you can almost not do anything about that. Like if you're attracted to somebody else and are willing to pay you a lot more money, you're going to go do it. If you want something more challenging, you're going to go do it, but you can as a CISO help reduce stress. And you just said something that I thought was really interesting that I, I mean, I kind of want to call out CISOs if they're not doing this. If you don't know the job aspects of the people on your SOC, if you don't know them by name, if you're not having lunch with them, if you're not having one-on-ones, go do something else. You should not be a CISO. Because <laughs> honestly, if you're sitting in the ivory tower, right, and you're just dealing with the executives and you just want to deal with the board, go do something else. Th that This is not the role for you because... This is not what the role requires. You should know by name your analysts. You should know your team. 
You should get to know them. You should understand why they're stressed and you should help remove it because that's your job as a leader. That is your duty and responsibility to your people. You will get a better outcome and an output from them as well. If they know that that you care about them and it's sincere, mm-hmm. you care about them as a human, and you are willing to make introductions and know them, you know, knowing the good and the bad of their job, you can help make better decisions and you can explain your motives to them as well. That's the opportunity to say, hey, this is the political pressure. This is the budgetary pressure. Mm -hmm. I'm not making decisions in a vacuum. Sometimes we have to make tough decisions. Sometimes we can't afford all the things we need to buy. But know that I I care about the difficulty of your job. Mm -hmm. And, And we are going to work. This was always my motive. We're going to build the best capabilities we can with the resources we have. Right. And then executive leadership needs to fight for cooperation in terms of the adoption of those great capabilities. So things like, look, we're doing M&A or, hey, we've got different data centers or let's, we've got different business units. Let's work toward getting them to adopt the great thing that we've built. Exactly. And those are two very different. But that's what, that is politics and influence mm-hmm. leads and cooperation of that. And, um, you know, flipping into another page, undefined career path raised its mm-hmm. ugly. Sure. I always find it fascinating when, uh, when there's such a big delta in responses. And so uh, this may be the most striking thing in the entire report, mm. uh, for what we're about to uh, cover, where if asking an executive what their, what their thinking is on career path, uh, in terms of does it make it better for, uh, to, to retain an employee, only 15% came back and said, yeah, you know what? Career path is important. 64%, which was the greatest percentage mm-hmm. by any frontline employee. So we're going from 15% to 64%. That has to be, back to what you said earlier, has to be a conversation starter. Someone has to take note of that. Yeah, I think the conversation needs to come from whoever the CISO's boss is to the CISO and say, what are you doing? And, and I think that the, I'm going to make, I'm going to take a step out and say, this could possibly be because those CISOs don't actually understand what the career path of a SOC analyst is. Do they actually know? Have they ever done the job? Do they even know what's required or what's in front of them to go do? How many can actually say yes? They might think they do, which is why CISOs answered 15% that undefined, <laughs> that only, yeah, okay. And the frontline guys are sitting there going like, you have no idea what my job is or what, what the next evolution or maturity of my role is. Like, you have no idea. That's why they answered that way. That's my stab at, at that look. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. You know, everybody wants to use an excuse to say, well, it's hard to find good people. It's hard to retain good people, right? They're saying this is difficult. But if, if we have somebody screaming here, you know, in numerically screaming, mm-hmm. say, hey, um, help us with our career. And it's effectively saying, help mentor me, help give me a guide that keeps me here. What's a program for me to, to be in, to develop skills, to develop relevance, to maybe grow as a technician or a leader or both? And the other one that's in the same sort of vein is, um, it's funny, only 6% of the officers said that poor leadership was a reason. Well, of course. Uh, (laughs) Only 6% were sort of aware enough. 
Whereas 27% of frontline staff were like, yeah, you know, sometimes we've got crappy leadership and that's sure. why that's, that's why I'm going to go, you know? So, well, both of these together, I mean, and, and what we're talking about speaks to, you know, we won't make this word up, but this is an actual word followership, right? Like this is all about being, if you're a CISO, you should be creating followership inside of your organization, because if you have that, then the outside influences of lack of budget or not having the political capital or, you know, just outside forces affecting you, your frontline guys and girls are going to rally behind the person that they follow their CISO to support them, even if they don't get the budget that year or whatever. They're not going to leave because they like their per the person that they're working with because they're giving them opportunities. I I've got people that have followed me three different jobs. And, and I've been, you know, a leader in these roles and I've had people just leave organizations to come work for me again and again and again. And, and that's because I value me investing in them so they can have, you know, a career path, but that career path might not be in that company that we are at. It might be at the next company as well. And they know that they recognize it and they will follow me because they believe that I am looking out for them and I believe in them. And it's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that hard to do. It's just being genuine. Like, do I care about other people that I work with? Yeah. Why? Because I work with them a lot. Most of like more, I see them more than I see my family. And I genuinely believe in helping other people. And if I'm in a position to be able to do so, damn it, I should. I think that one of the most touching things I've heard uh, through some of the folks I used to work with, uh, and it's been, you know, I, I've been with Eggsbeam now for, for three years, but having some of them uh, reach out or send an email or a text and talk about, you know, hey, your name came up today and we were asking, you know, how would Steve solve this problem, right? How mm -hmm. would, and it's kind of a, a mentorship piece. It's not about me, but it's how, what is the structure that we would use to solve problems is really what they're saying. So yeah. it's, and the, it's flattering. The flattering part is, is not that my name came up, but that that thinking and the problem solving uh, mindset is still being used, right? That's an element of to me of legacy, right? Uh, and that's the other kind of maybe the inverse or, or at least another way of thinking of it because you can't take everybody, but what, what is the maybe culture or the, the machine, uh, the, the collection of people, how are they operating even with, with you not being there mm -hmm. even for years later, right? I think that's another, you know, does the program stand? Uh, and, and that's, that, that to me is another measure of that legacy idea. I was just told about that actually by people that I talked to about my last role. It was just like asking, you know, just like, Hey, how's things going? I've been there in over a year, you know, just everybody happy. Everybody's like, what's going on with the team? How's it? Oh yeah. A lot of everything you built is still in place. Like we haven't changed like very much, if anything, like it's still, still going how you built it. Really no reason to change. I was like, made me feel really good. And you know what it does? It just validated the theory I had when I started the job there about what was needed and to see it still in place with the same people still executing on it and still enjoying what they're working on. It's like, no, good. I made the right decisions. I worked with the right people. We built the right things and this is good. Like I, I can feel good about that years later, even after leaving those roles. That's, that's a good thing. That's, that's good to hear that you've got that going on too with, uh, with your org. It just, it makes you, it makes you appreciate the time that you spent mm -hmm. and you, you hope that, you know, most of what I taught, if anything, was was a product of my failure. So it's like, don't do this, right? Oh, right. Uh, 
and and then maybe a little bit of forward thinking stuff. But but it's nice to know that um, you know so many of us didn't have maybe that many or maybe at all any great mentors or or great career helpers. So the fact that you can do that, you know, and most of the time it goes unnoticed, right? There's no one sort of rewarding you for that effort. Typically, even organizations that want to talk about you know, that even have business leadership development programs, they're not going to measure you for sort of the, the, the real sort of personnel development and mentorship. They're, you're not going to get a bonus or anything for that. So you typically the people that do it, do it because it's in their heart, not mm-hmm. because they're credit for it, because uh, there typically isn't any credit for it. Right. I, I have seen one time in a performance goals for myself, uh, my ability to retain the top talent on my team, but it didn't, you know, it, it wasn't a huge percentage, but it was on there. I was glad to have it because it gave me the goal that I knew I could meet just because I knew I was like, oh, I'm already doing this. This is great. This will be a gimme. But uh, it was good to see that that was a value that that company wanted to see in its leadership. And it, to some degree, rewarded it somewhat. Yeah, no, that's that's a start. You know, one thing uh, I found interesting kind of switching uh, gears a little bit is uh, metrics. So kind of the self-evaluation of, of how do you measure your program? You've probably already searched for this, or maybe you've, I know you've read the report, but there's one thing in there that screams out, especially amongst small security operations centers. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that? Or, or am I, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask you, which page is that on as I'm flipping through my notes on the... Uh, on uh, page, it's, it's page 43, and I'll, I'll go ahead and lead you. Thanks. So the small socks, the number one thing they track... It's not even a security item. Right. Yeah. Downtime? Business outage? Yeah. Yeah. So, and this has been one of the things I've had to coach some on is that for many organizations, failing an audit or causing an outage is far greater than having sort of the pain associated with those things is far greater an issue than a security incident. Sure. And so this, this sort of answer proves it uh, in a way, especially amongst, you know, smaller. Smaller doesn't necessarily mean less sophisticated, but no, no. In, many, in, in some cases it does, in some cases it doesn't. But, but we, we see that as a very strong sort of indicator that, you know, your priorities might be, you know, if, you, if your job is to find and respond to bad things, right. number one thing you're concerned with. Deconstruct why that is. I mean, I would take... I would take a guess as the reason that then those two things that you mentioned are actually close, I would say are closely related because of visibility, right? The visibility of an outage, the entire company knows, the executive leadership knows there's an outage, right? Failure of an audit, executive leadership and the board knows that that happened. A security incident, a specific security incident might not have that much visibility across the enterprise or organization to kind of get, you know, feathers ruffled. So, you know, people, people kind of, you know, I feel like teams, unfortunately, kind of act like beaten dogs a little bit, right? You're going to respond quicker and keep a keener eye on the things that caused you the most pain so you don't have to go through that pain again. And I bet you failing an audit got a lot of people screaming and a lot of people (laughs) upset. The website being down, you being out or outage, that got a lot of people upset. A single security incident probably didn't as much. So you're that's not on the very top of your radar, but I completely understand what, what you're talking about. But I think it's the human psychology that's kicking into gear as to why this, these, this data looks like this. Well, I mean, so, okay, so take, take the second one then. So down from there, yep. 
It's just number of incidents handled, which isn't bad, but it's not great. Mm. Uh, I guess for the, for the listener, uh, why is, if that's sort of the number, if your number one thing is how many outage hours did you cause? And the number two is how many incidents you handled. What are you still leaving on the table if that's all you cover? Right. Well, you, you're, you are trying to show, I guess, your value. Maybe smaller teams are showing their value because, hey, look at all this work we're doing. Maybe that's the metric that they, because it is interesting that the larger socks, 200 plus teams, which I would, I would go ahead and say that a larger sock of 200 plus team members is much more sophisticated and mature. Therefore, they realize and understand that the number of incidents handled is less of a metric that's important than a smaller, possibly, I don't want to say definitively, possibly less mature team of under 24 team members, where they are looking at and saying, oh, our value is measured in how much work we're doing. It's like, well, your value should be measured in how much good work you're doing. (laughs) Right, right. Let's make that comparison then. So a larger SOC, again, doesn't necessarily mean that it's better or more mature or more effective. But let's pretend that it is for sake of argument mm-hmm. in the moment. The top two things by percentage that they track, monetary cost per incident mm-hmm. and mean time to detect. Right. I mean, those are good metrics, right? I mean, they've, they've aligned the business value to the assets they're trying to protect. They know what the cost is when those assets are impacted. So I think that's a great metric. And mean time to detect, right? Like everyone should be chasing dwell time. That's... That's a right. phenomenal thing to be going after. What's really interesting is both the small and the large socks in in this both uh, scored identical to uh, each other on those. In fact, even the midsize, really all of them are very close to each other within a couple percentage, right around 35%. Right. So that, that to me is fascinating that, I, that we're seeing this type of difference based on sock size. And I think that you know, the, the question I then have, and, it, and it's not in this report, but we can make, you know, we can discuss it as part of this the show. Why aren't we seeing the same things? Is it does size equal maturity? Does size equal efficacy? Does size equal just, a, you know, different focuses on capability? We would think that if somebody needed a, a detection and response capability, it would roughly be the same. The, the definition of good would align you to the same type of things. Mm. But, we're, but we're not, we're seeing a vast separation between due to size. Figuring, going out on a limb and thinking that a larger sock has probably much more structure and ability to handle much more mature cap- like tracking of KPIs or even, even just the, the, the fact of having to actually just track those KPIs. I mean, the smaller the team, the less people you have to actually build those metrics effectively. It becomes somebody's second or third hat. So a larger right. team might even have somebody just dedicated to tracking and managing KPIs, working with the SOC manager to inform them of what the team is doing, where the focuses are, so that he can then shift resources around appropriately. So I would think that a larger team would be much more attuned to those more mature types of metrics versus the smaller team is trying to do everything, right? Because when you look at all the stuff in this report, large or small, all the functions still need to be addressed. If you have less people, you just have to have less people do more things, right? So it might just be a scaling issue. True, true. Speaking of scaling, you know, one of the things that that we often encounter, I think you and I even had a chat about this once, is so much of a security team's success is dependent interaction with other teams. Mm-hmm. 
So you can't sort of work in an island, even if you are one, right? You have to have cooperation and help from other areas. And that's another thing that's maybe tied in and related here that, you know, kind of pain points by, by role. And the biggest thing we saw frontline employees saying that that's sort of awful is uh, coordination <laughs> with IT. So for those on its slide uh, or page 50, 50 yep. you know, uh, the executives are like, ah, eh, you know, 26%. Yeah. 1%, but they're like, no, this is awful. So there's this, there's seemingly a pretty big uh, kind of rift between those two. I highlighted the same. I, that's the one thing that stood out in this section for me as well. And you beat me to it, but it's not shocking, I guess, because that's the thing that you kind of traditionally hear, I think, um, from the security team is their ability to coordinate between IT and themselves. So that's not a shock. I think the, the CISO for the front line, the CISO and manager one, that does seem low to me. I would feel like that would be, should be as high as the frontline employees would be feeling about that issue. So again, maybe there's a disparity between the frontline guys and girls working with IT and the CISOs thinking that their frontline guys and girls are working with IT. Because the CISO has very limited coordination responsibilities with IT. It's the CIO, maybe a couple of their direct reports. The front line has an entire other front line in IT to coordinate with, which could be a ton of people. So, you know, maybe that's the reason. Well, and, the, and what we don't know is there's sort of other, there's several types of coordination, right? You can have coordination, let's say, during an incident. Mm -hmm. So, hey, we need to go out and, and work with the field and deal with desktop services or help desk. But there's also coordination from a project perspective, too, to say, okay, I, I need to modify this environment or I need to roll out this technology uh, or another type yet is, you know, configurations and, and standards, mm -hmm. right? To say, okay, I need, I need, there's this, there's this practice we need to follow and I need, I need that, uh, that method changed in the field, right? You know, whether it's patching or config or whatever. So we, we probably need to expand on that, but it's amazing that, you know, the frontline folks are saying, look, this is awful. Mm -hmm. This is right. Effectively, again, it's another sort of screaming point within the report. I think this is this is a, 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 an area that we need to spend some more time on as a as a community to say, hey, like, are we good? You know, think good IR is all good coordination. You should ask that next year. Like that should that would be a great thing to hone in on. Like you said, like not just coordinating, but what level of coordination like is the issue? Is it during an incident? Is it during projects and implementation? Is it just day to day? What would be really nice is can you tie that back to the earlier questions we had was, did the poor coordination lead to you leaving the role or you being unhappy in the role that you were in? That's a good point. I mean, because that's, that's a, a point that doesn't does it measurably make your job more stressful. Right, right. Does it erode your confidence in leadership? Right. So if you're, if you maybe, you know, if you think coordination is poor, do you find that that's due to bad leadership. Right. Now we're doing you know, some so, root cause analysis on this. This is good. Yeah. This is, this right, is good, right. Steve. I like this. So anything else in the report? Uh, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're about at time here. Anything else that's, uh, that you would call out or recommend uh, in terms of advice uh, to, to anyone who's thinking about giving it a read? Yeah. I mean, definitely read the whole thing. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal. You know, I, probably the last part was the technology usage one. Um, it's good to see that the SOCs, and this is page 48, if people are looking at it, that 
what um, leaders and I, th- I think kind of close enough to all the way to the front line, or at least in the next timeline, sorry, the timelines, not by, not by role, where they're expecting, you know, uh, technology is going to take precedence around next gen SIM, user behavior, right? SOAR and automation. Like these, these areas have been up and coming, right? And it's like, they're seeing it like that's great that they're expecting that that's going to be rolling into things in the next 12 months or, or up to two years. So, you know, that's not a paid, you know, like, uh, you know, statement for me on, cause I know XBM does that. You guys are solving a problem that obviously exists. And, uh, this is the type of data you like to see because again, back to the thing about, you know, employees and their, why they like what they're doing. It's like remove those mundane tasks. Just get rid of that stuff and get people engaged. Use the technology. <laughs> Even if, you know, we just talked about issues with coordination, but the only thing larger than that percentage-wise was keeping up with security alerts, which all of what you just mentioned yeah. is sort of groundwork to help prevent or at least, uh, you know, deaden the pain yep. associated with that, right? So you're talking about, uh, you know, next generation tools, SOAR automation, these sorts of things. Yeah. So it's it's it all kind of comes full circle yeah tech enable anything you can make it better so that people aren't getting fatigued by it right reduce their stress with technology that's what we're supposed to be using technology for right is help us along not just uh you know bolt on and keep doing it the way we're doing it it's like no it's make my life a little easier so i can work on the challenging fun things i think that's an excellent summary mr hoagley thank you so much for your time and giving your perspective on the report. Oh, anytime, Steve. Thanks again for having me on and uh, good work on this. Thank you. That's our uh, podcast recap of the 2020 State of the Sock Report by Exabeam. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.